Lord, this morning we do desire to uh, not only lift Linda up in her situation, that you would uh, make the arrangements that need to be made and heal her, bring her back to restoration. We pray for Sharon as well in the mission field, that you would uh, minister to her, strengthen her, enable her, and use her as she desires to be used in the culture she's living in. And this morning we do want to lift up your name and understand what your word teaches this morning, particularly concerning the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. And we desire that uh, your word would in fact have an impact in the culture in which we live in today. Pray these sins in Jesus' name. Well, I think it's sometimes a good thing to take a big picture look at a major division. For example, we're going to look at chapters 9 through 11. And rather than jumping into the first verse there, I thought I'd give you an overview of the entire passage to put everything else in its context. Sometimes you can get lost in the details that we look at and miss the overall big picture. So that's what I'd like to do. And also give you kind of an introduction that's more current in terms of our culture and what's going on in the broader culture that we live in. And I think this passage actually addresses some of these issues that in the world today are not too much different from what they've been throughout world history. And anti-Semitism, I'd like to talk a little bit about it today, is propping up as if we had never had a Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Or it never happened. Or if it never happened, right? If we're close to the Lord's coming, you would expect that these things would, in fact, increase. And one of the things in the churches, remember there are several churches in the city of Rome, there were several Jews that were in Rome at the time that Paul writes, and some of them had become believers, and others had heard the gospel, some of them had rejected the gospel, but there were a lot of Jews in the city of Rome when Paul writes this letter, and the reason that he writes is he wants to put the whole Jewish picture into its proper Perspective, and that's what I'd like to take a look at. I ended last time by looking at kind of why do we have Romans 9 through 11. A lot of pastors will skip over it or simply go through chapter 8. And in fact, it kind of is seamless if you jump from chapter 8 to chapter 12. Chapter 12, he begins to talk about applying all of the principles that he's developed in uh, the prior chapters. And you might even think Romans 9 through 11 is somewhat parenthetical or kind of extra. Uh, it wasn't extra in the first century, and I don't think it's extra today. I think it fits in, and that's what I'd like to kind of address. So even though it is a little abrupt, remember last time I said uh, that we leave chapter 8 on a high note, very positive, eternal security, and you can even almost sense the emotion of excitement and contentment, all of the positive things concerning what assurance of salvation gives. And then you come to chapter 9 and you find Paul in extreme sorrow. 
That's the little paragraph there is the sorrow of Paul. And you might ask the question, well, why do we have this section and what's going on here? Particularly if you were Jewish, remember in uh, verse 16, the gospel is, is the power of God for salvation. And who does the gospel go out to in verse 16? That's who believe. Jews and... The Jews first. Mm-hmm. And then the Gentiles. Jews first and Gentiles. Well, what happened to the power of God? Because in the first century, there were many Jews that in fact rejected the gospel mm-hmm. and particularly in the city of Rome. Well, did the gospel lose its power? Or you might even ask, did Paul misspeak when he described the gospel in this way? Lots of Gentiles were believing. Some Jews, but basically the majority of them were rejected. You might also ask, if you were Jewish, we have at the end of Romans 8, eternal security. And I tried to give you a picture of other passages as well, that we can be absolutely certain that what God began in eternity past, he's going to complete. And when he talks about glorification, he puts it in the aorist tense. And generally that's a past tense in the Greek language of completed action. So Paul views our future glorification as if it has already taken place. And from God's perspective, it is certain and done, just as good as done. Well, if you were Jewish, well, what about Israel? It looks like Israel lost all of the things that God said. What about the covenants? What about all of the promises? We can ask that. What about the promises and covenants of Israel? Promises slash covenants. What about the covenants? Remember, these are legal documents. God binds himself legally to do the things that are contained in uh, the covenants, particularly those unconditional covenants that don't depend on man. What happened to them? Did they go by the wayside because it seems that Israel is rejected? And particularly after 70 AD, the nation is destroyed. Utterly and totally destroyed. Now, there's a later rebellion of some Jews that hung on. But even after that, Jews are scattered throughout the known world. And there's no hope of uh, them returning to the land. So what about these promises? What about these covenants? Now, Paul says in chapter 2, the Jews are under wrath. Number 2 through uh, chapter 3. He focuses in on depravity. He's already focused in chapter 1 on Gentile depravity, and then 2 through uh, part of chapter 3, Jewish depravity, and Jews are under wrath. Well, if they're under wrath, what about all of the promises concerning sonship, God's election, God's choosing of Abraham, and all of the descendants and the nation? Did the promises, did the promises of God fail or in some way did God go back on his word? He also talks not only concerning salvation or justification as we have in the book of Romans, that the law cannot justify. This is a huge point of contention amongst the Jews. And then when he talks about sanctification, the, the law is ineffective. You cannot be sanctified by the law. Well, what about Moses and what about the Mosaic Covenant and everything that's contained in it? Is the law now ineffective? 
So these are issues that a Jewish person reading through the book of Romans or hearing Paul in person, these are things that would crop up in their thinking immediately. So is Paul's gospel in error? It's kind of the only alternative. Either God broke his promises or this gospel that Paul is proclaiming must not be biblical, must be heresy. Therefore, we're justified in rejecting this gospel that uh, Paul is proclaiming. And what about the promise of the kingdom? If Jesus is the Messiah, where is the kingdom? Therefore, Jesus is not the Messiah because there's no kingdom. When the king comes, the kingdom will, in fact, be established. Therefore, the promise of Messiah is not Jesus Christ. These are things that the Jew would immediately begin to think about. And this is the main reason. In fact, these are the reasons that a lot of Jews were justified in saying that Jesus is not the Messiah. Therefore, the gospel is not true. Therefore, Paul is in error because God, in fact, does keep his promises. So Romans 9 through 11 will address every single one of these issues and questions. Some of them indirectly, but he will answer all of these. And that's why we have it in the book of Romans, because these were real questions. And if you're a Jew today, you would have the same questions. So you can use Romans 11, or at least the concepts of Romans 11, in sharing the gospel with with Jews. But in our culture, and one of the reasons that Jewish people, another reason that Jewish people have a hard time with the gospel is because of the history of anti-Semitism and particularly anti-Semitism from believers. The church has a horrendous record in terms of its relationship to Jewish people. And it's only been those few minority, Bible-believing, Bible-committed believers that have had a proper perspective on the nation of Israel and Jewish people, and that is true today. So let me give you a little background on anti-Semitism, because this chapter, or these chapters, 9 through 11, answer and, in fact, refute the attitudes of anti-Semitism, if you understand what Paul has contained in it. So we have a problem of anti-Semitism. It is intense in Europe. And as more of Islam has its effect on Europe, it's going to continue to increase. But Europe, even apart from Islam, for several years now, has been anti-Semitic. And obviously, leading up to World War II, there was a lot of anti-Semitism. And you know the uh, product of the uh, Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. In fact, the latest issue of World Magazine, its cover story is on anti-Semitism. And appropriately, in fact, I'm going to camp on this idea, it uses the imagery of the serpent. And I think what they're doing is reminding us of Genesis 3.15. So there's an article in... uh, in the article that deals with anti-Semitism, and the the article begins with a photograph of a cemetery with graffiti and Nazi signs and overturned tombstones. In fact, I get another photograph towards the end here with the Nazi symbol on the uh, tombstones. So there is a problem, and it's growing in our country. 
the problem of anti-Semitism. So let's address it, and let me first begin with where does it come from, what are the roots of anti-Semitism, and first of all, let's take a look at it uh, biblically and hermeneutically, and from the approach of Scripture, and this deals primarily with anti-Semitism within uh, the church and within the body, the broader body of Christ, I think it has hermeneutical roots. Now, most of you know that I teach a course on hermeneutics. In fact, I would recommend it for those that haven't taken it. I think Maddie's the only one, you're the only one that's taken it. But hermeneutics is the science and art of interpretation And one of the things I stress in that course is that all heretical or unbiblical views begin with a faulty hermeneutics, with a faulty hermeneutic, you might say. So let me kind of illustrate what I mean here. Every viewpoint that is non-biblical relating to the nation of Israel has to take, and I'm talking about within the church, has to take a non-literal approach in its interpretation of the Bible. And when you do that, several things occur. One of them is this view concerning the nation of Israel, and I'm going to deal with uh, replacement theology. Replacement theology takes passages like the ones that I was alluding to earlier, the, the covenants and the promises, and they have to take a non-literal interpretation of all of those passages in order to apply those passages to the church. Now, I'm going to come back to replacement theology, but simply stated, replacement, as the term indicates, replacement theology is the idea that God is finished with the nation of Israel. They are set aside. 70 A.D. proved it. They are totally destroyed as a nation. God is done with them. Now God is working through the church, and the church has replaced Israel. So all of those promises, all of those covenants, are now transferred over to the church. But to do that, you have to depart from a literal or a grammatical, historical, contextual hermeneutic. And also... Did you know that anywhere in the New Testament where you says Israel? Exactly. In fact, that's the whole idea where it speaks of Israel in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. In fact, in the Old Testament, Israel is the Old Testament church. But that's a non-literal approach because obviously the Bible makes distinctions there. So when you come to the New Testament, it speaks of Israel and they'll even use passages that speak of the new Israel, and Paul is going to do that even in uh, Romans 9 through 11, and we'll make, obviously, comments that clarify that. So this is a very common theological approach in the church today. Roman Catholicism, replacement theology. Reformed theology is replacement theology. A lot of Arminian churches, replacement theology. So this is very common. I'll give you some of the uh, characteristics. Well, I've given you the essence of it, and I'll give you some more as we progress here. Now, replacement theology in itself 
is not anti-Semitic. But it opens the door, and usually the product, if you carry it out to its logical conclusion, oftentimes ends up in anti-Semitism. So anti-Semitism comes from a theological approach that theologians call replacement theology. Now today it goes by some other names because there's been a backlash, obviously, from more conservative, literal approach believers. And obviously when that happens, sometimes people change the, their names so that, and it goes by different, different names. We'll talk about that. That's right. Jumping jump ahead. Super. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. And from anti-Semitism, it's only one step away from not only a Holocaust, but uh, severe uh, persecution of Jewish people. So it starts with a non-literal approach to Scripture and the essence of it. Everywhere you see, as Russ points out, everywhere you see Israel, now you change that and make that equal to the church. So all of the promises, all of the covenants, God is faithful to those promises and covenants. He's transferred them from Israel to the church. And that's unbiblical. We'll talk some more about that. So it has hermeneutical roots, but it also has very, very deep biblical or spiritual roots. In fact, where does anti-Semitism ultimately come from? It's satanic, and where does it start? The Garden of Eden. Very good, very good. Why do people hate the Jews? Number one, it begins with an attack on the line of Messiah that begins with Genesis 3.15, where this is where after Adam and Eve have sinned, God intervenes to condemn not only sin, but to condemn the sinner, And in that context, he condemns Satan himself. And in verse 15, he this is the condemnation upon the serpent, who is the agent of of Satan. In fact, there is something of an equivalence in Revelation 12, where it talks about the serpent of old and identifies him with Satan himself. I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, and or... Behind the serpent is Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman. There was only one woman. This is Eve. And between your seed, in other words, those that descend from you. Remember when Satan fell, about a third of the angelic creatures fell with him. It's kind of hinted at in the book of Revelation as well. So a large number of angelic creatures fell with Satan and became what the Bible identifies as demonic spirits. That it, Those are the seed of the, the serpent. But there's going to be enmity between your progeny, you might say, or your product, and her seed. Did she have any seed at this point? Not yet. Well, she had seed, but not yet. In other words, she had capability of producing descendants. And Paul makes a big deal about this later on in the New Testament that I'll get to in a moment. But she's going to have descendants. She's going to have a seed. The interesting thing about Genesis 3.15 is when the Bible speaks of seed, it is always 
the seed of the man, not the woman. In fact, the word, kind of the Hebrew word for sperm is the same word group. So it's interesting that it speaks of the seed of the woman or the descendants of the woman would be another way of translating it here. Then it talks about this promise. And by the way, you can summarize, I've mentioned several times, you can summarize all of world history with what God promises here. He shall bruise you on the head. The he, notice it's capitalized, refers to a particular descendant, a particular seed of the woman. Paul in Galatians identifies that individual as obviously the Messiah. So we have the first messianic promise. There's going to be a line from the woman. It eventually leads to Messiah. So there's going to be enmity between your seed and her seed. That is the beginning of anti-Semitism. It begins with an attack on the line that proceeds from Eve, Adam and Eve, that will culminate ultimately in the Messiah. So he shall bruise you on the head. It will be a fatal destruction of Satan and all of the forces of evil, and you shall bruise him on the heel. It's not clear in this passage, but if you put together all of the scriptures, theologians call this the first announcement of the gospel or pro-evangelium, identifying the work of Christ on the cross. And this will not be completed till the last act of human history, recorded in Revelation chapter 20. So that's why I describe this as a prophecy that outlines the rest of world history. God's going to take all of world history to bring a solution to the problem of sin. But there's going to be this enmity throughout history as well. There's going to be some form of anti-Semitism that exists throughout world history. And I'm going to just summarize this. I don't want to take a lot of time because I want to give you an overview of all of the chapters. And I want to leave time for that. But there has been an attack on the seed, not only going all the way back to Genesis 3, but here's just some of the major examples. The first descendant, we have uh, Cain and Abel, the first descendants. One of them becomes the murderer, becomes a murderer. So obviously he's not the seed. In fact, the seed will go through the next descendant, who is Seth. But Cain murders Abel, so you already have. Satan doesn't know all that God is going to do in the future. He doesn't know what God's plan is. He's assuming, perhaps, that Abel is that particular seed. So we have an attack even on the first uh, of the descendants of Adam and Eve. We have a clear attack again in Genesis chapter 16, where Ishmael, in disobedience... Abraham has already been given the Abrahamic covenant, and there's going to be descendants from him. A great nation is going to come from him, and he's past the age of bearing children, and his wife is barren and has never born a child. She's past the age that's impossible. It's going to take supernatural action. Abraham does not trust in that, so he takes the advice of his wife in chapter 16, and we have Ishmael. And by the way, anti-Semitism has come between the conflict of Ishmael and Isaac ever since. Many of the Arab nations that are antagonistic to the Jewish people come through Ishmael. 
In fact, Islam looks at Ishmael rather than Isaac. We also have Esau instead of Jacob, and Romans 9 through 11, actually chapter 9, is going to deal with that as well. And again, we have a reversal here. The firstborn is not where the seed or the line will progress, and there's antagonism there. In fact, uh, Jacob has to flee because Esau potentially would kill him, and I won't review all the history there. Pharaoh killing the babies in Exodus 1. That's kind of the next chapter after the patriarchal period. We have an attack on the line again. The Jewish babies to get rid of them. An attempted murder of David who is in the line. David is in the line of Messiah. That's made clear with the covenant that's made with him plus the genealogy from Adam and Eve through David. And in 1 Samuel, you have ten attempts by Saul to kill David. Obviously, all of them fail because God is going to preserve that line. But you could view that as an anti-Semitic attack on the line of Messiah or a demonic or satanic attack. And remember the Queen Athaliah, the only female reign on the throne, kills all of the royal seed except for one, is hidden away. Josiah is hidden away. He is in the line. And he becomes king, but it's a satanic attack on the line of Messiah. And, and there's other examples. These are just some of them. That's Second Chronicles 22.10. And remember, during the exile of the Jews in Persia, we have a little story in the book of Esther, particularly chapters 3 through 9, where Haman plots and gets an edict from the king to basically destroy all of the Jewish people. That would be another attack on the line of Messiah. And then even in the, in the first century, the killing of the babies by Herod in Matthew 2.16, this would even though the text doesn't make a point of this, this would be another attack on the line of Christ in order to destroy, actually, the one who is the Messiah. And you could even include also the attacks on Jesus himself, the temptation, Matthew chapter 4, and all of the other attacks. And Satan thinks, well, if I can get him killed by the Roman Empire motivated through the Jewish people. This does away with Messiah. Little does he know that God's going to turn that into the means of salvation on the cross. So these are attacks on the seed. And then, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, and what? From the seed of the woman, or born of a woman. What's he alluding to here? Not the seed of the man but of a woman, a virgin conception and a virgin birth. Genesis 3.15 hints at a virgin conception. Through the woman, the seed of the woman, comes the son. Born of a woman, born under under the law, referring to Messiah, referring to, to Jesus Christ. So why do people hate the Jews? First, Satan tried to attack and destroy the line leading up to Messiah. But once Messiah 
was born and died on the cross for our sin, was raised from the dead. And even in the Old Testament, God has attacked the plan of God. So there's been a plan on the seed, but also a plot on the plan of God uh, for world history. Because it's through Abraham's seed, in fact, through the seed of the woman, that the resolution of evil will be dealt with, plus God's people through the seed of the woman, through Abraham, God promises a nation. That nation is going to be God's people, and God's people are ultimately going to reign on the earth, and we know that's even future from our day today. So Satan is constantly trying to thwart the plan of God. And these are the roots, these are the spiritual roots of anti-Semitism. So we can expect throughout history, satanic attack and satanic attack upon God's people, and particularly God's people identified as the nation of Israel. And we have a historical record of oppressors throughout world history in terms of nations and empires. In the book of Exodus, we have the example of the Egyptian empire. Second Kings, we have the Assyrian empire attempting, in fact, destroying the northern kingdom. Southern kingdom survives. And then we have the Babylonian kingdom, also in Second Kings, that destroyed the nation for the very first time. This is after the decline of the nation. Second Kings at the end there. So Babylon has been an oppressor of God's people. What does God promise Abraham? Those that bless you and your descendants shall be blessed. Those that curse you, that's the word. In fact, he uses two words there. They shall be cursed, a strong word and a weaker word. All of these empires have gone by the wayside. The Jews continue to persist. Persia gave you the example of Esther. It was an attempted genocide by the Persian Empire. It was a little brief, but you can call that anti-Semitism. Rome, first century, were under the dominion of the Roman Empire. They were the ones for the second time destroyed the nation of Israel. After the first century history, beginning in 627 or so, as a result of Islam, descendants of Ishmael, descendants of Esau, descendants of others that were obviously not Jewish, uh, have persecuted the Jews throughout the history of Islam, beginning in 627 on. And unfortunately, the church as well. The church has been one of the main persecutors of Jewish people. Sadly, regretfully, terrible black mark on the church, and it continues to this day. And interestingly, even some of the church fathers, and this is why I use Clement of Alexandria, where does a non-literal approach to hermeneutics come from in the early church? comes out of Alexandria, and it comes from Origen and Clement of Alexandria. That's this the roots. Well, the roots even go into Jewish history as well. But the church at Alexandria took a non-literal approach to interpretation. The church at Antioch held to a grammatical, historical, contextual, or literal approach. 
Clement of Alexandria, Israel denied the Lord, thus forfeited the place of the true Israel. Who's the true Israel in his mind? Yeah, the church. Yeah. The church. And there's some other church fathers, not all of them. This is the beginning of replacement theology. And I've got lots of other quotes. In fact, maybe I'll read one here. For example, even Irenaeus. Notice what he says. Now, I wouldn't say that he was totally replacement theology, but he shows some tendencies in this quotation. For inasmuch as the former, he's referring to the Jews, have rejected the Son of God and cast him out of the vineyard when they slew him, God has justly rejected them. Strong terminology there. And given to the Gentiles outside the vineyard the fruits of its cultivation. So you can see even the beginnings of replacement theology there. And then we have uh, Miletus of Sardis, also in the second century there. Israel was precious before the church arose, and the law was marvelous before the gospel was elucidated. But when the church arose and the gospel took precedence, the model was made void, conceding its power to the reality. And then he goes on, Israel was made void when the church arose. So you can see that he has the concept of the church replacing Israel. That's replacement theology. And there's other quotes by other church fathers. Now, not all of them were replacement theology, but some of them were. There were many that obviously held to a more literal interpretation and made a sharp distinction between the nation of Israel and the New Testament church. So these are examples of oppressors. After the first century, we have the Spanish Inquisition, where Jews were expelled from Spain. And by the way, some of them settled in the United States. And it's thought that even some of them in northern New Mexico. And obviously, the Nazis in Germany during World War II that resulted in the Holocaust. So these are examples of oppressors that you would consider anti-Semitic. Well, let me give you a brief additional description to replacement theology. I've already mentioned, but we could call the church, or they call the church, the new Israel that has replaced, therefore replacement theology has replaced or superseded national Israel. So there's no more national Israel, even though there's a nation today in the land of Israel. So that's replacement theology. And like I said, many denominations, many churches hold to it. I think it's unbiblical. And I gave you the roots of where it comes from. Now, after the Holocaust, there has been somewhat of a more sympathetic view towards Jewish people and a reaction to replacement theology. And oftentimes when there's a reaction, then there's a tendency to change the name. And in some quarters goes by supersessionism, a new name for replacement theology, but it's one and the same. You might also hear what might be described as Christian Palestinianism. These are believers who 
have taken a stand against Israel and in favor of the Palestinians, and they are advocating for the Palestinian statehood and uh, Palestinian rights, etc., and against what they would describe as Zionism or uh, Jewish possession of the land. Now, neither replacement theology or supersessionism or Christian Palestinianism are necessarily anti-Semitic, but they leave the door wide open for the next step, which would be persecution or ill-treatment to Jewish people. And like I said, uh, it has infected the church today, even some evangelical churches, even some that are considered solid Biblical churches, if they have adopted replacement theology, uh, they're not, they're just one step away. Now, I wouldn't classify some of them as anti-Semitic per se, but if they have replacement theology, I think that's a very dangerous doctrine. An example, John R. Stott, an evangelical scholar, he accepts replacement theology Closer to current time and our situation here, Andy Stanley in his book, in fact, the book Irresistible, and on page 65, he makes a statement that appears and in the context to be very supportive of replacement theology. He says, this, referring to Israel, was his nation, in other words, God's nation. The nation God had raised up from one man for one purpose, to bless the world. Now, that's the Abrahamic covenant, and I would agree with that, but the next part is not very good. But that chapter was drawing to a close, and he's referring to the time of Jesus or Jesus' day. God's covenant with the nation had served its purpose. Again, he's referring to the Abrahamic covenant. It was no longer needed. Now, that's not true. In fact, it's an eternal covenant still in effect, not done away with. Stanley goes on to say, ancient Israel was a means to an end. I would agree with that. The end has come, yes, but the end is not completed yet. So he closes the quote here. The new was just beginning. He's referring to Christianity and the church. Now, The church has not replaced Israel. That is a false doctrine. So a description of actual anti-Semitism. I've got a quotation from Alan Dershowitz and there's others from other leaders. Uh, I use his because he's been in the news recently. He's written a book and in the book he describes anti-Semitism in the following quotation. That would be taking a trait or an action that is widespread, in other words, in the culture, something usually negative. Then he goes on, if not universal, and blaming only the Jews for it, that would be anti-Semitism. Now, probably a better description and more of a definition is that of the Anti-Defamation League, which is the following, the belief or behavior hostile towards Jews, just because they are Jewish. That's a good description of anti-Semitism. 
a very sad approach by some churches, even evangelical churches and theologians, and certainly a very black mark on the overall Church of God historically has not only been replacement theology, but the product of it, anti-Semitism. So that's a little bit of an introduction to Romans 9 through 11 in terms of its relevance to the culture in which we live in and some people that we may have even associations with. Let me conclude in the time that we have remaining by giving you an overview or the solution or the refutation of not only replacement theology, but obviously anti-Semitism itself. And that would be Romans 9 through 11. And I think this is the reason that is in the book to correct this false idea and this false concept. So in the book of Romans, we have the first 17 verses give us an introduction to the entire book. I quoted verse 16 earlier where we have kind of an overview of the whole book or a summary of the book. 16 and 17 summarizes the book. And then we have the major division of chapter 1, verse 18 through 8, verse 39. That's the end of the chapter. We just completed that in our last session last week. I call that the provision of God's righteousness. In other words, God has made his very own righteous character available for depraved humanity, for depraved mankind. Man is totally unable, according to Paul, and in fact, according to the Old Testament, man is totally unable to do anything pleasing to God. It must be a free gift, and God has made that available. So that major section deals with the provision of God's righteousness for depraved Gentiles and also for, obviously, Jewish people as well. It's available through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, satisfying all the legal requirements of God the Father in a perfect and only sacrifice. So that's the provision of God's righteousness. Now, beginning in chapter 9 through 11, he's going to deal with, well, what about the Jews? And I gave you the introduction concerning what a Jewish person might think after hearing What Paul has said concerning sanctification and justification and these issues relating to all of humanity, Paul is now going to vindicate God's righteousness. In other words, God is perfectly righteous in the way that he has dealt with humanity, with both Gentiles and also Jews. And by the way, the Old Testament talks about Gentile salvation in the time frame of the Messiah. And this time frame has come, and Paul has elucidated that in this first major division, these first eight chapters. But now in chapter 9 through chapter 11, he's going to deal with what about the Jewish people? What about the nation of Israel? What about all of the promises? What about the covenants that God has entered into with the nation of Israel? And I divide it into three parts, three major parts, three subdivisions, The first subdivision, he's going to deal with God's past sovereign choice or election of Israel. That's chapter 9 through the first 29 verses. So God has chosen and made some definite promises to 
not only Abraham, but through Abraham, his descendants and or the nation of Israel. What about those? Does the Abrahamic covenant still have effect or in some way has that been put aside or reassigned? Well, Paul says the very opposite of being put aside. And you can divide this portion into four parts. We have Paul in the first five verses with extreme sorrow over the situation of his fellow countrymen, his brethren, in terms of ethnicity, his fellow Israelites. Great mourning, great sorrow over them because they have rejected the Messiah. And as a result, in fact, he reviews in that portion the great privileges, and he doesn't say that any of those privileges are revoked. In fact, they're still in effect. Well, what about them? Now, beginning in verse 6, he's going to essentially vindicate God's word. And notice what he says in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, even though the Jewish people have rejected the Messiah. And even though all of the promises and the covenants center in on the Messiah, the word of God has not failed in their rejection. And then he tries to distinguish between true believing Jewish people, and you have examples throughout the Bible of genuine believers in the nation of Israel in terms of God's promises, and the nation as a whole, and other Jews that have rejected some of what God has spoken. So the word of God has not failed. He goes on, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, it's possible to be a Jew in ethnicity and be an unbeliever in the promises and covenants of God. And he says, neither are they all children. In other words, they're not all within the family of God because they are Abraham's descendants. In other words, physical descent alone is not a guarantee of God's favor or God's salvation even. But, he says, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And now he's going to kind of expound upon some of the Old Testament history concerning God's choice of not only Isaac, but later on Jacob, whose name would be changed to Israel. So he vindicates the word of God in 6 through 13, and he's going to deal with the justice. God is perfectly just in doing what he does, beginning in verse 14 through 18. So he's going to vindicate the justice of God. In verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Then he uses his characteristic little phrase there, may it never be. And then he's going to defend the justice of God from uh, the history Concerning Moses, if you look at verse 14, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And in this context, that is perfectly just. God can do that because all of humanity is, in fact, separated and depraved. And then the last portion of this first subdivision God is sovereign over all his works, all of his dealings, whether they be with the nation of Israel or others. So chapter 9, verse 19 through 29, Paul vindicates the sovereignty of God. 
and he will go into some detail there. Now, beginning in chapter 9, verse 30, we have the second subdivision. So the first subdivision deals with the past sovereign election. The second subdivision deals with the present rejection of Israel. Now he's speaking in terms of the first century, but it goes on. The present rejection of Israel, chapter 9, verse 30 through chapter 10, verse 21, or the end of chapter. And he's going to deal with two major issues in that portion giving the reasons why God has set Israel aside, not totally abandoned them. In fact, Israel is under God's judgment. He's going to make that point, not only in this portion, but also in chapter 11. And the reasons for that is because Israel has attempted to establish itself under a false righteousness, a righteousness based on works rather than what Paul has been saying in these first eight chapters, a righteousness based on faith and faith alone. That produces salvation, justification, but a false righteousness produces discipline from God. So we see that in chapter 9, verse 30, through chapter 10, verse 11. And then from uh, verse 12 through 21 in chapter 10, or the end of the chapter, A second reason that Israel is under discipline and set aside temporarily is because they have rejected the gospel and they are in unbelief of the gospel, the gospel that is presented in these first eight chapters. That leads us to the third subdivision, which looks to the future. And this is not only future from the time of Paul, but historically is future even from our day a future restoration of Israel where God will, in fact, fulfill all of the promises that he's made. He will fulfill all of the covenants that he's entered into with the nation of Israel. But that is a future period of time. We've gone through 2,000 years of history, and none of this has been fulfilled yet. And therefore, we conclude that if we take the Bible literally, particularly the Old Testament covenants and the additional revelation that we have in the New Testament. We take it in a grammatical, historical, contextual approach. We come to the conclusion that God will eventually and in the future fulfill all of the covenants, all of the promises that he's made to the nation of Israel. There are no promises in the Old Testament that pertain to the church. They pertain to the nation of Israel They're not fulfilled, and Paul's going to make that explanation in chapter 11, future restoration of of Israel. There's three parts to this chapter. He's going to emphasize the point that Israel's rejection is not total. And he's going to start off, for example, in verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people. Now he's talking about in a final and in a total way. They're rejected over a temporary basis. But God has not rejected his people, has he? And then he uses the little phrase again, may it never be. And he's going to use his own life as an example. For I too am an Israelite. In other words, he's Jewish and he's a convert. He's a believer in the Messiah. He's a believer in Jesus Christ. He's going to emphasize a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And Paul is an example 
He's also going to make the point in these first 10 verses of chapter 11 that God has always maintained and preserved a remnant of Jewish people that have been true believers, true sons of Abraham is the point that he's going to make. And then in verse 12 to 32, he's going to show that the rejection of God is not permanent. They have a future. There's going to be a restoration. And in fact, notice in verse 11, I say then they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them, the Jewish people, jealous. So that's where the Gentiles come in. God is in this time frame dealing with the Gentiles, bringing the Gentiles in. But there will be a future day where in verse 25, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This period is going to end. There's going to be a new time frame. And then the key verse here, and thus all Israel will be saved. God is going to restore Israel. And perhaps what we are seeing today in the land of Israel is the beginning of that restoration in that they are in the land as a national entity back to the place where God gave them that land and awaiting this spiritual awakening when all of Israel will be saved. The New Testament expands upon this and gives a lot of detail concerning that future total restoration. In fact, Ezekiel 37 tells us of this restoration. And then verse 26, all Israel shall be saved just as it is written. So this is Old Testament. The deliverer will come from Zion, in other words, the Messiah, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's the new covenant that we have in Jeremiah 31. So Israel has a future restoration. The church has not replaced Israel. And he concludes the chapter with worship of God for this great plan. And we can conclude by praising our Lord for this wise plan as well. Now, we also have the conclusion to the book of Romans. I said I would complete our view of the book of Romans. Beginning in chapter 12, we have Paul applying the principles that he's developed in the first 11 chapters. So Romans 1 through 11, we have primarily a section or two divisions of doctrine. And then beginning in chapter 12, we have the application of that doctrine. And that completes with a conclusion to the book of Romans. That'll complete your look at the entire book of Romans, at least an overview. So we can praise our Lord for his very wise plan.